Section 6 of A Study of British Genius by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Section 6 Marriage and Family. Celibacy, average age at marriage, tendency to marry late, age of eminent women at marriage apparently a greater tendency to celibacy among persons of ability than among the ordinary population fertility of marriage fertility and stability of eminent persons alike pronounced average size of families proportion of children to each sex we have some information concerning the status as regards marriage of 988 of the eminent persons on our list of these 79 being catholic priests or monks 12 of them since the reformation without celibates of the others, 177 never married. We thus find that 25.9% never married, or if we exclude the vowed celibates, 19.4%. It must, of course, be remembered that a certain though not considerable proportion of the unmarried were under 50 at death, as some of these would certainly have married had they survived. It may be added that of the women considered separately, about two-thirds were married, though several of them, especially actresses, who were unmarried formed liaisons of a more or less public character and in a few cases had several children it must not be supposed that all these eminent men who lived long lives in celibacy were always so absorbed in intellectual pursuits that the idea of matrimony never occurred to them this was not the case thus we are told of dalton that the idea had crossed his mind but he put it aside because he said he never had time in several cases, as in that of Cowley, the eminent man appears really to have been in love, but was too shy to avow this fact to the object of his affections. Reynolds is supposed only once to have been in love. With Angelica Coffin, the lady waited long and patiently for a declaration, but none arrived, and she finally married another. Reynolds does not appear to have been overmuch distressed, and they remained good friends. These cases seem to be fairly typical of a certain group of the celibates on a list. A passionate devotion to intellectual pursuits seems often to be associated with a lack of passion in the ordinary relationships of life, while excessive shyness really betrays also a feebleness of the emotional impulse. In the case of many poets who have adored their mistresses with passionate fervour in verse, it would appear that there has often been no accompanying fervour in the love-making of real life. Sir Philip Sidney even though he was counted the paragon of his time with all his sweet sonnets never shook the virtue of his stiller lady penelope rich who yet eloped some years later with another man who was not a poet even in many cases in which marriage occurs it is easy to see that the relationship was rooted in the man's intellectual passion the average age of marriage among the five hundred and three men on the list concerning whom i have information on this point is thirty one point one years the most frequent age being twenty six years the distribution is as follows Table is displayed on the page with age, number of cases, and present. I have ascertained the ages and marriage of the fathers of the eminent persons on my list, not including the fathers who are themselves of sufficient eminence to be included on the list, in seventy three cases. They are distributed as follows. A table is displayed on the page with the age groups and the numbers between them. The most frequent age of marriage of the fathers is 25, but the average is 30 years. It would thus appear that while both British men of genius and their fathers tend to marry at an abnormally late period, the former marry of anything, even later than their fathers. If, however, in the 54 cases in which data are forthcoming, we compare the age of marriage of the individual man of genius with that of his 
not eminent or less eminent, father, the results are not quite concordant. It is found that five married at the same age as their fathers, while 29 were younger and only 20 older. The deviations from the paternal example are often very considerable in either direction, and it can scarcely be said that the data before suffice for the conclusion that our British men of genius have married later than their fathers. If we compare the distribution of the frequency of the marriage age among British men of genius and their fathers with the general population, the contrast is very striking. In England, generally, 57% of the men who marry before the age of 30 marry between the ages of 20 and 25, a larger proportion than in any other European country. The curve for the British men of genius much more nearly resembles that for the general population in Sweden or in France, where of all the European countries marriage is latest. It is, however, of more significance to compare British men of genius with the professional classes of their own land, avoiding also the fallacy of including second or subsequent marriages. Ansel found that the average age of marriage for clerical, legal and medical bachelors in the 19th century before 1840 was about 28 years. There is thus a small but distinct delay in the age of marriage among men of genius, a delay which would still more be marked if we can assume that the general tendency, noted by Ansel as in progress during the 19th century, for marriage to take place later among the professional classes may be pushed back to the previous century. It would be further marked if the comparison were made more strictly between professional class of men of genius and ordinary professional class men by admitting from the men of genius those of aristocratic and plebeian class, among both of whom I find that marriage has frequently taken place very early. This seems highly improbable. It is much more likely that while there have been fluctuations from time to time, the age of marriage has not on the whole greatly changed, so far as professional classes are concerned for many centuries past. I am confirmed in this opinion by an examination of the age of marriage which prevailed in various branches of my own ancestry, belonging to the middle and upper middle class, during the 17th and 18th centuries. The general average was 29, and taking the 17th century figures severally, though here the numbers are few, it was decidedly higher. The average age, it will be seen, lies between that which I have found for the fathers of our eminent British persons and that found by Ansel for the British professional classes generally before 1840. I find in the marriage allegations of the Archdeacon of Essex for the years 1791-97, to where the age about is given, that the average for 20 bachelors is 26 years. The exact social class is not, however, obvious. It remains probable that when we take a sufficiently high standard of intellectual eminence, the age of marriage is somewhat later than that of the professional classes generally, but it would scarcely appear that the difference is considerable. The married women among the British people of intellectual eminence concerning whom we have definite information form but a small group of 26 persons, a group too small to generalise about. Their average age at marriage was 28 years, and the most frequent ages of marriage were 22 and 40. The distribution is as follows. A table is displayed on the page with age and the number of persons. Under 20, 3, 20, 9, 25, 40, 30, 3, 35, 3, 40, 4. Although the numbers are so small, it is probably not an accident that the most frequent ages of marriage should be 22 and 40 years. If we take into account the ages before 30 only, we note a marked tendency to early marriage, more marked than among English women of the professional classes, more marked even than among the general population. 
But after the age of 24, there is a sudden and extraordinary fall. The ages of 26 and 27 are unrepresented altogether, and still more remarkable. A slight rise which eventually takes place is postponed to the ages of 40 and 41, towards the end of sexual life. The interpretation of this curious curve is, however, fairly obvious. The claims of the reproductive and domestic life are in women too preponderant and perious to be easily conciliated when the claims of a life of intellectual labour. Women who marry at the period of greatest general and sexual activity between 25 and 30 tend either to have their intellectual activity stifled or else to be seriously handicapped in attaining eminence. The women, on the other hand, who have either married very early and then escaped from or found a momus vivendi with domestic and procreative claims, or else have been able to postpone the sexual life and its domineering claims until comparatively late in life, enjoy a very great advantage in attaining intellectual eminence. Thus, it is that among British women of genius, very few marriages take place during the period of great reproductive energy. The large majority of such marriages fall outside the period between 23 and 34 years of age. In the majority of cases, marriage took place before this period, the relationship, from one reason or another, being very often dissolved not long afterwards. But in a very considerable portion of cases, marriage never took place until after this period. Thus Fanny Burney married at 41, Mrs. Browning at 40, Charlotte Bront at 38, while George Eliot's relationship with Luz was formed at about the age of 36. These names include the most eminent English women of letters. It would thus appear that there is a tendency for the years of greatest reproductive activity to be reserved for intellectual development. By accelerating or retarding the distributing emotional and practical influences of real life, this tendency might still be beneficial even when the best work was not actually accomplished until after a late marriage. Ansel found the age of marriage of English spinsters belonging to the professional classes previous to 1840 to be 24.75 years, while after 1840 it was 25.53. Mrs. Sitwick found the age of marriage of the Sisters of Oxford and Cambridge Women Students in exact agreement with Ansel to be 25.53 years, while the age of marriage of the students themselves was 26.7. Among the general population in England, the chief age of marriage for women is between 20 and 25. At the end of the 18th century, the average age, about of 19 spinsters, in the marriage allegations of the court of the Archdeacon of Essex was 23.5 years. We have now to consider more minutely the status as regards marriage of our British men and women of eminent intellectual ability. When we estimate the 79 individuals who had taken vows of celibacy and the 177 others who were definitely known not to have married, we have 774. Of these, 732 are definitely known to have married, while the remaining 42 are doubtful. It is probable that the doubtful may be equally divided between the married and the unmarried. We cannot assume that the same proportion of married and unmarried prevails among them as among the known group, for it would appear that in many cases the omission of the mention of marriage is to be regarded as a tacit statement on the biographer's part that the subject was not married. If this is admitted, we must conclude that in the whole body of 1,030 persons, including the veiled celibates, 277 never married, this is to say a proportion of 26.8%. If we omit the avowed celibates, the proportion is reduced to 20%. We leave out of account alike the avowed celibate group and the small, dubious group, and consider only those remaining persons, 909 in number, of whom we have definite knowledge, 
the percentage of those who never married is found to be 19.4. We consider separately the most recent group, i.e. those whose names are contained in the supplement to the Dictionary of National Biography. The results are not widely different. The proportion of the unmarried being in the ratio of nearly 18%. It is natural to ask the question whether the tendency to remain unmarried is greater among our men of ability than among the general population. It is, however, obviously difficult to answer the question with any precision, because we must of course compare the men of ability with normal persons, not only of the same class, but the same period. A consideration of the results seems to suggest that there is a somewhat greater tendency to celibacy among men belonging to the very highest class of genius than there is among the rank and file of able men. But that, so far as the latter are concerned, the tendency to celibacy is not notably greater than among the ordinary population of the same social class. We see the most recent group of our eminent British persons, which probably shows a somewhat lower general level of eminence, also shows a somewhat slighter tendency to celibacy. It is probable that among men of eminent ability, the tendency to celibacy has always been slightly, but only slightly greater than among the general population of the same social class. This conclusion is confirmed by an inquiry made by Professor E. L. Thorndike, Marriage Among Eminent Men, Popular Science Monthly, August 1902. He sought to ascertain the proportion of married individuals among the 1,000 most eminent men in a biographical compilation of contemporary Americans entitled, Who's Who in America? The standard of ability here demanded is necessary very much lower than that of the persons on my list. It was found that of those who had reached the age of 40, 12% were celibate as against 15% for the most recent group excluding the women on my list, nearly all of whom had far past the age of 40. For the whole male population over the age of 40 in the United States, Professor Thorndike states, the proportion of celibates is from 11 to 7%, decreasing with age. Of the 753 persons who we may reasonably suppose to have married, 548 are definitely stated to have had children, 112 are definitely stated to have been childless, the remaining 93 are doubtful. If we assume that two-thirds of this doubtful remainder may be included among the fertile group, we may say that 19% of eminent British men and women who married have remained sterile. If, however, we only take into consideration those cases concerning which we have definite information, we find that proportion of the sterile is about 17%. This is certainly less than the real proportion for the whole married group. For there can be little doubt that in a large number of cases the biographers have made no mention of children simply because there were no children to mention. In many cases I have been able to verify this statement that the merely negative absence of information meant a positive absence of children, as this is not invariably the case. We may assume that the real proportion of individuals whose marriages were sterile for the whole of our married group is more nearly 19 than 17 percent. If we consider the 55 women separately, we find that one was a vowed celibate, and 19 others remain unmarried, while of the 35 who were married, 14 certainly had children, and 21 apparently had no children. A few of the actresses occupy an uncertain borderland between the married and the unmarried. They have here, however, according to the same rule as has been adopted with the men, been regarded as unmarried, even though they had a recognised family, whenever they were not generally recognised as married. The number of sterile persons, like the number of unmarried persons, among our eminent men and women, must be regarded as, in all probability, an abnormally large proportion in comparison with the general population of the same period in class. It must be borne in mind that the figures which have been given do not represent the proportion of fertile and sterile marriages, but the proportion of persons who have proved fertile and sterile in marriage. 
As many of our eminent persons entered into two or more marriages during life, and very frequently only proved fertile in one or in none, it is evident that if we were to consider the ratio of fertile and sterile marriages instead of the ratio of fertile and sterile persons in marriage, the prevalence of sterility would be much more marked. Simpson found that the proportion of sterile marriages in two Scotch seafaring and agricultural villages was about 10%, while in British peerage he found that it was about 16%. J. Y. Simpson, Obstetric Works, Volume 1, page 323, et sec. Professor Carl Person, manipulating the data furnished by Howard Collins, has found that during the early part of the past century, among the middle and upper classes chiefly of British race, or belong to the United States, a class very comparable to those in the present group, the total sterility was about 12 or 13 percent, rather less than half of this, i.e. about 6 percent, being due to what may be termed natural sterility, while the remainder, i.e. 6 or 7 percent, must be set down to artificial restraints on reproduction. At the present day in the United States, sterility has greatly increased, and Dr. Engelman finds it to exist in 20% of marriages, in St. Louis and Boston, in dispensary practice, and in 23% among the higher classes in private practice. Although among the foreign elements, the population of proportion is very much lower. In New Zealand also, at the other side of the world, sterility is at the present day very marked. Here the methods of registration enable us to form an approximate estimate of the proportion of childless marriages among a population of somewhat mixed British race with a high standard of living and the proportion of marriages in which there is no surviving child at the father's death is about 16%. But it must be borne in mind that we have to allow for the early death of the children in some cases, as well as for the early death of the father. We have also to remember that this increase in sterility is a modern phenomenon and that the artificial restraint of reproduction to which it is in large part, if not mainly, due is of recent development. All the indications point to the conclusion that the sterility of our eminent men is greater than that of their contemporaries of the same social class. I may add that among the 62 eminent married men on my list who appear in the supplement of the Dictionary of National Biography, and therefore constitute the most recent group, the proportion who are sterile appears to be in about the ratio of nearly 20%, which very closely approximates to the general average. In Galton's group of modern British men of science, the proportion of sterile marriages was higher. There were no children one out of every three cases. It is somewhat remarkable that although the number of infertile marriages is so large, the average fertility of those marriages which were not barren is by no means small. We have fairly adequate information in the case of 281 of these eminent men, I have not included those cases in which the biographer is only able to say that there were at least so many children, nor have I knowingly included the offspring of second or subsequent marriages. Wherever the number of children represent gross on its fertility, it is unfortunately, in a very large proportion of instances, quite impossible to say. It is probable that in a certain proportion of cases only the net fertility, i.e. the number of children who survived infancy and childhood, has been recorded. It is therefore probable that the average number of children in these fertile families, which is 4.8, must be considered slightly below the real gross fertility. The average reached is not far from the normal average, and very decidedly below that of the families from which the men of genius spring. With regard to the distribution of families of different sizes, the results as compared with the figures already given are as follows. Two tables displayed on the page, with a columns listing size of family, normal families, genius-producing families and families of men of genius. Allowing for certain irregularities due to the insufficient number of cases, 
the interesting point that emerges is the return towards the proportions that prevail in normal families it will be seen that in all but a few cases the families of men of genius differ from genius producing families by approximating to normal families it must be remembered that in neither of our groups are the data absolutely perfect but as they stand they confirm the conclusion already suggested that the men of genius belong to families in which there is a high birth rate a flaring up of procreative activity which in the men of genius themselves subsides towards normal proportions the families of the men of genius seem to differ chiefly from normal families in showing a greater tendency to variation there are more very small families there are more very large families it will be noticed that the families of sizes range between three and six both inclusive or unduly few it might be supposed that this is due to the artificial limitation of families more especially since in professor pearson's opinion the normal families themselves show a deficiency in those groups probably due to this cause i am however inclined to doubt whether that is so in the case of families of men of genius although to a small extent it may be so it is possible that from the present point of view the group may not be homogeneous but made up in part of men with feeble vitality and a tendency to sterility and in part of men with a tendency towards unusual fecundity thus leading to a deficiency in medium-sized families the relationship which has been found to exist between our british genius producing families and the families which the men of genius themselves produce i e the increased fertility followed by the next generation by diminished fertility does not represent a novel result it had already been found by galton englishman of science page thirty eight in his group of modern british men of science in eliminating sterile marriages he found that the average size of the families of the men of science was four point seven children almost exactly the same size as we have found the whole group of british men of genius galton however only took living children into account there would appear to be a considerable resemblance between the fertility of genius producing families and of insane families we see that our eminent british persons belong to families of probably more than average fertility that they themselves produce families of probably not more than average size and with an abnormal prevalence of sterility in france ball and regis confirmed by marindon de montreal appear to have found reason for a similar conclusion regarding the insane they state that natality is greater among the ascendants of the insane than in normal families but afterwards it is the same as in normal families while they also note the prevalence of sterility in the families of the insane the question however needs further investigation tolux courses de la folie page ninety one in the case of two hundred and seventy-eight families of a british men of genius it has been possible to ascertain the number of children of each sex this is found to be over one hundred and five boys to one hundred girls a somewhat higher proportion of boys and has prevailed in great britain during the past century but in accordance with the results we have reached concerning the size of the families of our men of genius very much closer to the normal average than are the sexual proportions prevailing among the families from which the men of genius spring if however i am right in supposing that in a certain proportion of our cases biographers have stated not the gross fertility but only the net fertility or the surviving children we are not entitled to expect so close an approximation of the proportions at birth since the preponderance of boys begins to vanish immediately after birth the figures thus suggest that the families of men of genius show the same tendency to excess of boys which we have already seen to be clearly marked in the case of the families producing men of genius the data are too few to indicate whether there is any corresponding excess of girls in the families of women of genius End of chapter 6